You can take your copy of God's Word and open to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is where we will be today. Um, we're in a series entitled Saved, as you can see from the screens. And um, we're, we've covered four of the nine sessions, and uh, we're walking through what all is involved or included in being saved. This application of redemption. And um, today we will continue that in Hebrews chapter 12 and 1 and 2 as we look at the work of sanctification or being conformed to the image of Christ or being made practically holy. Uh, Not practically as in almost, but practically as in your living it out, your everyday living and my everyday living, becoming what we already are in position. And uh, so let's look at this together. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 1 and 2. Before I read the scripture, let me just start with this. So I can start with an illustration. Um, in 1983, in, uh, in Australia, every year, they, they run what is considered to be the longest and toughest ultramarathon in the world. Uh, it is, let me get this right, 875 kilometers, which the, over 500 miles. I don't know what that is. But we're not talking about in a car or on a motorcycle or in a boat or an airplane. We're talking about on foot. Over 500 miles on foot. Anybody in? Not I, said the fly. In 1983, uh, They were getting ready to run this race, and the booth was set up, and the the participants were walking up to the registration table, and all these just specimens of athletes walking up to the table with uh, with their next-to-nothing shorts on and and all of this this gear on, their sponsorships from Nike and and, uh, and Adidas and and all these, these different companies that sponsor them, walking up to the table, registering, getting their number, putting their number on, and getting ready to run. When? Out of the crowd walks a 61-year-old man wearing overalls and galoshes. And he walks to the table, and he says, I'd like one of those numbers, please. They thought he was joking. They thought it was some sort of publicity stunt for sure. Surely this man wasn't running, and so they began to ask him questions. Well, uh, who's behind this, sir? What's the deal? What's what's the joke in all of this? And he said, there's no joke. I, I want to run. And they said, well, do you have any sponsors? And he said, I don't have any sponsors. And they said, well, you must not be any good then. And he said, I don't have to have sponsors. Let me run. And so they went ahead with it. They registered the man. And Cliff Young put his number over top of his, I like to imagine them as pointer brand overalls. I don't know what they wear in Australia. That's what my papa always wore. And he put that number over his overalls, and he got ready to run. And he lined up with all of these other uh, 150 to 200 other runners that have, have, can you imagine that many people signing up for this thing? I mean, just gluttons for punishment, but he lines up with them. He's near the back of the pack and this, the gun goes off and they take off and they just leave him. I mean, they all just take off and here he is, 61-year-old man in his overalls and he just begins to kind of shuffle. In fact, that's what the news couldn't get over is the way he ran. Here was not only this 61-year-old man wearing overalls and galoshes running this race, even attempting it, but look at the way he runs. I mean, it's just this sort of hunched-over shuffle. Well, everyone knew that this race, 
typically took at least five days, maybe closer to six days. They would run for 18 hours straight, sleep, and then get up and run for 18 hours more and sleep and run for 18 hours more. And they did this um, for five or six days till they finished the race. Well, no one told Cliff Young that you were supposed to stop and sleep. Cliff Young, the first day, just shuffled his way across Australia. And by the time the other runners checked into the, the check, first check-in station, he was well back. Next morning, he was a little closer. They were still ahead of him. The next day, a little closer. The next day, a little closer. On the fifth day, he passed them. He passed them, and he kept shuffling his way until finally he crossed the finish line, not in 10th place or not in 5th place, but in 1st place. 61-year-old man had ran for almost six days straight, wearing overalls and galoshes, and had won the biggest race in the world. And he didn't just win, he demolished them. And in fact, what he did is he changed the whole paradigm of that race today. That race still goes on today, and when they race today, they don't stop. Cliff Young went on, and he ran several other races. At 81 years old, he died after he had tried another one. I tell you that story because I want you to know that this race that we are in is also a marathon. A Christian is called to run the race. And you may not feel like a runner. Now, I try to run. I know it doesn't always look like it, but I try to run. But I don't always feel like a runner. I get out there some days and my knees hurt and my feet hurt and everything else hurts and the bed calls my name and all these things. But in the Christian life, whether you feel like it or not, you are a runner. I want us to see this in our text today in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring back to Hebrews 11 and looking at the hall of faith, all these that have gone on before and completed their race, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Today, I want you to look at this race that we are in, this race called sanctification, It's a big word. We don't use it very often. It's a word basically that means, that it refers to this race that we are in. Sanctification, we see here in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 12, is this race. It's the imperative that is given to us in this text. The writer of Hebrews tells us, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also run. Let us run. The Christian's life is a race. It's not a jog. It's not a leisurely stroll. It's not a treadmill. Now, I don't, I'm, I'm not the most avid runner in the world, 
Oftentimes I will send my wife a text and say, hey, I'm not going to be at the house. I'm going for a jog, is what I call it, because it's probably more walk than it is jog, you know. And that's not the race that we're talking about here. In fact, the word for race here in the Greek is the word agon, which sounds a lot like agony. It's where we get our word agony from. And here, when the writer of Hebrews says, let us also run this race that is set before us, he paints the picture of this grueling ultra-marathon that will last all of our lives. He says, let us run the race that is set before us. What is this race? Is the race of the Christian's life, is it to be happy and to be content in this life? Are we supposed to just put on a smiling face and get up every day and say, today I'm going to run my race. And I'm going to run it with a good attitude. Is that the Christian race? Is the Christian race this body of knowledge that we need to learn, that we need to come to the end of and, and get all of this knowledge? Is there a course of curricula somewhere that we are supposed to take in? And when we get all of that in, then we will be called to heaven. Is the Christian race a certain amount of good things that we are to do? Are we supposed to get to the point where finally our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds? Are we supposed to become what is referred to often as a good Christian? I don't think it's any of these. Is it simply to be faithful? I tried to think about the average Christian in this, and I think this is probably the doctrine that is the most missing in our churches today. I think when it comes to this issue of running the Christian race, I think there is this vacuum. And I think if I were to go to a lot of Christians today, they would say, well, what would you say is the most important part of running the race? And I think for a lot of people, they would say, well, I think just being faithful. Well, I don't think that's all there is to it either. I don't think Scripture teaches us that. It's not simply about us being faithful. Now, if you're talking about being filled with faith the way those in Hebrews chapter 11 were, then possibly so. But we have, we have written the Christian life off or the Christian race off to be something less than what it really is. We have, we have put it in a category of simply being faithful, just showing up for worship services and just checking the boxes, serving here, doing this, doing that. And the reality is it's far more than that. Owen Strecken, I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, but uh, he, defines, he defines the Christian race or sanctification this way. Simply, he says, living righteously. Living righteously, that is what sanctification is. Wayne Grudem, in his book, Systematic Theology, that we're going through together on Wednesday nights, Wayne Grudem defines sanctification this way. He says, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. I think it's a great definition, but it's rather wordy, so I hope to separate it out for you just a little bit today. I, I kind of put my own definition down. The race or sanctification that we are in is putting off sin. It's putting off the old self. And it's putting on practical righteousness. It's putting on the sinlessness 
that will be ours one day in heaven. It is having the image of God renewed and restored in us. You and I were created to bear the image of God. But in Genesis 3, in the fall, when sin came into the world, the image of God was marred. It was scuffed. We're in the process of having that image restored. He goes on and he says, let us run the race that is set before us. And he then says these two words, with endurance. There's probably not a better picture of endurance than Cliff Young running that ultra marathon. Not sleeping, running for almost six days. And when the writer here of Hebrews says, let us run the race that is set before us, becoming like Christ with endurance, I want you to have that picture of Cliff Young in your mind. That it is a run, it is a race that will last your entire life. That there's never going to come a point in this life when you say, I'm done. Now, how's that for encouraging? You come to church today for me to tell you that you're going to be running nonstop for the rest of your life. Say, thanks, Pastor. That really helps me today. But it is a lifelong race. There will come a day when it will be complete, but it will not be on this earth. One day when we enter into the sinless perfection of heaven, having been made sinless ourselves, but until that day, we run. Let us run the race that is set before us with endurance. So, That all sounds well and good, and it would be great on a T-shirt or a coffee mug. But you need to know how. I need to know how. I come to a verse like this, and I say, if I'm going to be running for the rest of my life, I need to know how. Am I supposed to just shuffle through and figure the thing out? I think the Scripture here goes on. The writer of Hebrews gives us two very important um, qualifiers as to how we are supposed to run. Number one is this, that we are supposed to Rest. You say, whoa, that, that's sort of antithetical to running, right? You rest. I mean, that's, that's what I do when I don't run, right? I want to run. I, I know I should run, but it's so much easier to rest. But the Bible here, the writer of Hebrews says for us to rest. You say, what, what do you mean? How does he tell us to rest? Because he tells us that as we're running, we're to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is God's part in our running. Wayne Grudem's definition, if you'll remember, said that that this race that we are in is a partnership between God and us. We're to rest. That's the first part. This is God's part. Jesus will finish what he started. It's what Paul means in Philippians 1.6, our verse for the month, when he says, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. He will finish it. You can count on it. If you have begun your race, if you have been born again, been converted, turning away from your sin and by faith trusting Christ alone, if you have through that, been justified, been made completely right before God. If you have been adopted, 
been brought to the table, sat at the table of God. And you can mark it down that, that God will also finish what He started. That He will make you not only right in your position standing before God, but He will make you right in your behavior. He will make you right practically in your living before God. Does this mean that we should take the philosophy of the Keswick Convention of 1875? The Keswick Convention was in England in 1875, and it was a convention that got together to discuss that, that really the, the race that the Christian runs is really all just rest. It's where the phrase, let go and let God, came from. Are we supposed to simply just rest that way, just let go and let God, and I'll just live my life, and as I live my life, God will, will take sin out of my life, and I will become sinless. Is that it? Am I supposed to just let go and let God? And that sounds well and good too, but I don't think so. Neither does J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop living in those days. He wrote a book that I would commend to you. I've tried through this series, and I will continue to recommend books to you. I have not recommended one to you yet that I would recommend more than this book, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. It is an old book. But it is a classic. Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And he disagrees with this also, that we should just let go and let God. He, re- he wrote an entire response to this. I want to give you several quotes throughout the rest of this sermon. But he doesn't think so. Scripture doesn't think so either. Scripture doesn't teach that we simply should let go and let God. It's what it means in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12-13, through 13, when it says, Work out your own salvation. With fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We see in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, we see this partnership. And you and I, as we live the Christian life, are to work out our own salvation. That we are not to figure it out. That it's not coming to this issue of wanting to be right with God and saying, I'll just figure this thing out. I'll just pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'll put on my overalls and I'll just shuffle through life and I'll figure this thing out. And one day I'm going to cross the finish line and God's going to say, well, you know, nobody else got it done but you, but you kept running all night and so I'll let you in. Is that what it's talking about? No. The Bible here says, work out your own salvation. It is not saying earn your own salvation. What it's saying is because He's the one who is working in you both to will and to work, since He's in you as a believer, live it out. Don't ever come to that place, believer, where you say, you know, I I just can't deal with this anymore. You know, I've had an anger issue for all these years and that's just who I am. And I'll never, I'll never get past this anger issue. It's just going to be who I am. And the Lord's just going to have to accept me like that. When you say that, you're saying that there is a sin in your life that Jesus' blood was not enough for. Jesus' blood paid all for all of those sins and the Holy Spirit lives in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And since there is no excuse for any sin remaining in your life, live it out. Take advantage of the resource that you have. 
Will you be perfect overnight in it? No. But should you surrender to it and admit defeat? Absolutely not. We are to rest in our race. We are to trust God. We should not simply just let go and let God, though. But He will complete what He started. The second thing I want you to see in our race as far as how we run is that we are to run. I want you to walk away from here today remembering that when we run the Christian race, the two components of how are that we rest and we run. And uh, there's no way to become a runner other than to run. I mean, I, I I can buy the books. I can watch the videos. I can buy the shoes. You know, you remember the old Michael Jordan commercials? Was it Michael Jordan or somebody else? It's got to be the shoes. Uh, was, that, was that Michael Jordan? Y'all don't know. Are y'all awake? Were y'all alive then? I think you were. I can buy the shoes. I can, I can buy all the stuff. I can buy the sports watch that'll tell me, you know, all the stuff. It'll calculate my heart rate and all this sort of thing. But you know what? Until I put one foot in front of the other... And get out there on the pavement and run. I'm not a runner. I can act like a runner and look like a runner. Sound like a runner. But until I run, I'm not a runner. And that's what the writer here of Hebrews is telling us. And, and i got to be honest with you. I'm going to go off my notes here for just a second. I think there are a whole lot of Christians that are sitting in churches that have bought the shoes that have bought the books, magazines, that have watched the videos, that have all the paraphernalia that goes along with running, but they may look like a runner and act like a runner and sound like a runner, but there are a lot of Christians that are not running. And that's why, that's why we come to this issue and you say, well, he has been a Christian for all these years. Why is he not further along in his faith than he is? Because he's never ran. It's also why you can see someone come to Christ and you say, well, they just came to Christ last year, but, man, they're just passing everybody up. I mean, look at her. She is just on fire for the Lord, and she is maturing so fast in her faith. Why? Because she's disciplining herself to run. That's why the writer says here in this section when he says, Let us also run the race that is set before us with endurance, laying aside, laying aside the weight. Let us also lay aside every weight. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with weights. There are runners that are training today and they strap all sorts of weights to their body. (laughs) You know, I figure I got enough of that. I don't need to add anything else. But there are runners out there that strap parachutes to their back, put on weighted vests, run in water, push sleds, have someone tethered to their back with a rope. You know, I mean, just crazy running. But what if that same runner came to the race with the vest on or the parachute on or the sled in front of him And he's in the blocks. And the announcer is about to say, on your mark, set, 
And just as the person says, set, the trainer looks over him and says, you got your parachute on. You're supposed to take your parachute off. And what if the runner says, no, 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 I like it. I've gotten used to it. I'm good. Go! What's going to happen to that runner? That runner's going to be slow. Sluggish. And he's going to come in dead last because none of the others will run with any of that. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. But the Bible says that we, are, we should remove every weight. So what's the application to you and I? Well, the application for us is that as we run this Christian race, it is not merely enough for us to ask, is it a sin? John Piper, I heard him preach this and he points this out and he says, it's not enough to ask, is something a sin? And he says that's about the lowest question that we could ever ask. Instead, we should be asking, does it help me run? This thing may not be a sin outlined in Scripture, but does it help you run? Does it help you grow closer to the Lord? There are things that you can do in your life that you are free to do that the Scriptures never call sin. And I won't stand up here and call them sin. Here's the thing. We've got to get to the place where we understand that we're responsible for our own running. And you don't need a preacher to constantly step on your toes. What you need is to grow up in your faith and to take responsibility for your own running. And to say, while this may not be a sin in itself, I think it hinders me from running. I think it hinders me from being like Christ and lay it down. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Now there is inherent error in sin. If you're involved in sin, that's blatant sin, that Scriptures outline as sin, you can't run the race and hang on to that. That is the opposite of what it means to run. There are those today who are saying, and I, I don't want it to seem like this is the only sin out there, but with the homosexual agenda, there are those who are trying to argue that, yes, I'm gay, but I'm also Christian. If you know something is a sin, if Scripture outlines it as sin, yet you claim that you can hang on to your sin and still come to Christ. It goes against what we looked at a few weeks ago in conversion. It is impossible to repent turning to Christ and hang on to your sin. And homosexuality is just one example of that. And he says here to us, if we're going to run, we need to lay aside those sins. The Bible uses extreme language. The Bible says, flee. Was it Joseph who was groped by Potiphar's wife? She had made sexual advances against him and he had told her repeatedly, I can't, I can't. 
Everything in my master's house is at my disposal, but you are not one of those things. And she kept advancing him until one day she groped him and pulled him close. And the Bible says that he fleed in such a way. Fled, not fleed. I've had dogs with fleas, but... He fled in such a way that he left his coat behind. He ran right out of his clothing. Jesus later on in his teaching while he was on the planet said to a crowd, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's extreme language. Can you imagine being in a crowd today? Jesus up here, if, if, and if he were to say that to you, you know what? You're involved in sin. Pluck your eye out. If your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? Why is Jesus being so extreme? Because Jesus knows. We can't pursue Christ We can't pursue Christ's likeness while holding on to sin. It's better for you to enter heaven blind and maimed than it is to think that you could get there full of sin. Christian, today, I want to tell you that many of you, include myself in that as well, Sometimes we think we can run this Christian race. We can run the Christian's race. And we can, we can run toward becoming holy. And it won't cost us anything. We can still hang on to all of these things. And it couldn't be any further from the truth. The Scripture tells us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. How do we run? We rest and we run. We rest knowing that one of these days the Lord will say, just as He did on the cross, He will say, it is finished. And it will be our time. And we will be transferred into heaven. And our sanctification will be complete. He will finish what He started. But also, while we are here, we are to run. We are to remove the things that aren't necessarily sin, but they just hinder us. And we are to remove the sin from our lives. Putting off the sin. This explains why Christians, I've talked about this earlier, this, some can be in different places because they're not doing this. They've never disciplined themselves for the purpose of godliness. Christians who have sat in church services, sat under hundreds and thousands of sermons and Sunday school lessons and vacation Bible schools and revivals and all of these things and remain virtually unchanged. How does that happen? Two ways. Either they are not saved or they're not running. More times than not, I would tell you, the first is the case. Because the Bible uses the language that it is the Lord's will to sanctify you. Those who He predestined, He also called. And who He called, He justified. And those whom He justified... It will glorify, and in the middle of that is the sanctification process. And the writer there includes sanctification and glorification that God will complete what He started. And if you're here today and you've been coming to church, you've been a Christian for all of these years, you, and you remain virtually unchanged, still struggling with this sin in your life, you need to ask yourself, number one, 
Am I genuinely converted? Or number two, am I running? I want you tonight to come back because I'm going to talk a little more in detail about this process of running. J.C. Ryle, the, the author of Holiness, he says this, Some are satisfied with a miserably low degree of attainment, and others are not ashamed to live on without any holiness at all, content with a mere round of church going and chapel going, but never getting on like a horse in a mill. You ever seen a horse grinding at the stone, just round and round and round? It's the picture he gives here of Christians who have just gone to church for years and years and years and just checked the box, but they've never progressed. Others seem so godly, so mature. You look around and you see some people and you say, boy, they just, they're just so godly. It's because they have disciplined themselves. It was the attitude of Paul when he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, when he says, Not that I have already obtained. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. J.C. Ryle again, and when he finishes out that quote after he said, some are like that horse just on that meal, he finishes out and he says, let us stand fast in the old paths, follow after eminent holiness ourselves, and recommend it boldly to others. There may be a person close to you that would listen to you when they wouldn't listen to anyone else. And you may look at them and you think, boy, they're just not growing in their relationship with the Lord. Maybe they need someone to spur them on. Maybe they need a brother or a sister to come alongside them, not to, not to avoid them because you're worried that they may slow you down, but to come alongside them and say, would you, would you walk through this with me? Would you read this book with me? And let's get together once a week and let's just talk it through. Would you help me to memorize this verse of Scripture? Would you, would you meet with me to pray? Would you go out and witness with me? And then why do we run? How do we run? We rest and we run. Then why do we run? Why, why even bother? Some might be sitting here saying, what does it matter? If I'm right before God, if He has justified me, and in my standing before Him, I'm going to get to heaven, and, and, and He's going to say, there, there's no more condemnation against you, then why should I even bother to run? Because the Bible says that the mark of someone who truly has been converted, someone who truly has been justified, he will be a runner. He will run. Why else do we run? The Scripture tells us here in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 12. It points to the one who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. That's why Jesus ran. He was the founder, the starter. He was at the start. He started our faith and he finished our faith. He will finish this process of sanctification in our lives. And all the while he was running, he was looking forward to the joy that was set before him. 
One day, past the cross, past the tomb, He would be enthroned at the right hand of God. Receiving again the praise of countless angels. And one day to be surrounded by not disembodied spirits of saints, but one day to be surrounded by the spirits of saints who have been reunited with their glorified bodies. To worship around His throne. To have every knee bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why we should also run. Looking forward to the sinless perfection of heaven, gathered around the throne of God where Jesus is seated, it should cause us to endure the cross, endure any cross, endure whatever comes our way. Following Christ, running toward Him, running toward holiness, will not, it will not always be painless. There will be days when it will cost you. But aren't you glad that when Jesus was headed toward the cross, that He didn't pray in the garden, Jesus, I don't care about your will. Take this cup from me. Aren't you glad that instead he prayed, Jesus, not my will, but your will. And he took the cup of the wrath of God and he drank it down every last drop. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. Living for the joy that is set before us one day around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him throughout eternity, should cause us to endure any cross, despise any shame. That's what Paul means in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. When you look at the things that you have to endure and suffer, the shame that comes, Jesus suffered shame when he was crucified. They crucified him naked. He despised the shame. The word means that, that he waited up and he considered that what he was going through here would be nothing in comparison to the joy that was set before him. And when we look at eternity coming that way, whatever we have to endure here is nothing in comparison. Paul says, For I consider that whatever we have to endure here is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. But there may be someone here today who says, but that just doesn't do it for me. I, looking forward to heaven, to the sinless perfection of heaven, to the sitting around the throne, it just doesn't do it for me. It doesn't cause me to want to endure the shame, endure the cross. And J.C. Ryle, let me give you this last quote of his. It says, Most men hope to go to heaven when they die. But few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would Enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we are on earth. The notion of a purgatory after death which shall turn sinners into saints is a lying invention of man and is nowhere taught in the, in the, in the Bible. 
We must be saints before we die if we are to be saints afterwards in glory. The favorite idea of many that dying men need nothing except absolution and forgiveness of sins to fit them for their great change is a profound delusion. We need the work of the Holy Spirit as well as the work of Christ. We need renewal of the heart as well as the atoning blood. We need to be sanctified as well as to be justified. It is common to hear people saying on their deathbeds, I only want the Lord to forgive me my sins and take me to rest. But those who say such things forget that the rest of heaven would be utterly useless if we had no heart to enjoy it. What could an unsanctified man do in heaven if by any chance he were to get there? Let that question be fairly looked in the face and fairly answered. No man can possibly be happy in a place where he is not in his element and where all around him is not congenial to his tastes and habits and character. When an eagle is happy in an iron cage... When a sheep is happy in the water, when an owl is happy in the blaze of noonday sun, when a fish is happy on the dry land, then and not until then will I admit that the unsanctified man could be happy in heaven. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but the reason that God has not just taken us now is really twofold. One is there are more that need to hear the gospel. There are more from every tribe and nation and tongue that need to be gathered so that they will be around his throne. But secondly, he's doing a work in you and me. He's fitting us for heaven. He's changing our affections day by day. This race, this marathon that we are in, it will last our entire lives. We will never be made perfectly holy, practically holy in this life. But there at the end, in some mystery to me, The sanctification will be finished. It will be completed. And that's what makes heaven heaven. We will enter in having the image of God restored in us. Perfectly in our element. Knowing and being known completely. Christian today, I would challenge you today to... Step up your pace. Step up your pace. Begin to run. Rest in the Lord knowing that He is going to complete it in you, but also pick up your pace in running. I don't want to preach legalism here. I'm not preaching that that you have to do these things. Pick up your pace in reading the Bible and praying and witnessing and singing We sing these songs. We sing these songs that that talk of the greatness of Christ and put all of the focus on Him. And it is to prepare us for one day when we are in heaven and the songs are loud and true in heaven. And we will one day love it. Christian, pick up your pace. If you're here today and you've made some profession of faith and you wonder, am I really or not? How could I be this far into it and really seem to not be progressing? I would ask you to ask yourself the question, am I really trusting in Christ alone? Have I really turned away from my sin and put my faith in Christ alone as my only hope? If not, then today I would love to talk with you. I'd love to help you. 
And for those of you that are in that camp, it's going to be just incredibly difficult. Because those of you that are in that camp, people have watched you all these years. And you say, well, I I can't do this because everyone knows me. Everyone thinks that I am. And how could I ever step out and admit that I really never was? Wouldn't you rather deal with a little bit of shame, a little bit of embarrassment in a place where there will really not be any shame? No one would look down on you for that. And actually get to heaven than to surrender to that thought and never get there? Christian, run. Let's pray together. Jesus, today only you know Only you know what is going on in this room, in the hearts and the thoughts of men and women and children. God, I pray, though, that you would would speak loud and clear. God, I pray that across this room, maybe that there would be maybe people who have been church members for a long time today have the scales fall off their eyes. And God, that today that they would come to a place where they are saved, they're born again, they're converted, they're justified, they're adopted into the family, they are begin this process of sanctification. God, I pray that for the believers in the room, God, I pray that, Lord, that you would spur us on. You would stir our hearts, our affections for you. God, that you would give us the grace to run, to pursue you, to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And God, I pray that you would move in us however you would see fit. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.